that's good news for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not good news for those who reject Christ. And Father, we see some of that carried out here in 2 Kings this evening of someone obeying you, but perhaps this evening. And so we'll make that application moment. But teach us now about these true events that truly happened in the kings of Israel. Thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we turn to chapter 10 of 2 Kings, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. And it reads, Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, the elders, to the guardians of the children of Ahab. Right, so he's writing letters to them. So the first thing is, is he's writing letters to these guardians of the children, to the elders, to the officials, and the rulers, and we're not quite sure at least yet why he's writing. Um, and then even after we find out why he's writing, still takes us a little while to read the context to figure out what he really means. But let's talk about the 70 sons. Well, how did Ahab come up with 70 sons? Well, the scripture says, obviously, that he had multiple wives. In 1 Kings chapter 20, you remember when Ben-Hadad came against Ahab, Ben-Hadad said, your silver and your gold are mine. And most beautiful wives and children are also mine. The king of Israel replied, It is according to your word, my lord, O king, I am yours in all that I have. Then the messengers returned and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Surely I sent to you, saying, You shall give me your silver and your gold and your wives and your silver. So he had multiple wives, plus children by so, these 70 sons would have been the brother, the brothers of Joram, who was the last king before Jehu killed him. So, it would have been his brothers. But they're still there, and of course, this is a royal line. And how is it that they're at Samaria? Well, it's, it's kind of thought that maybe they were there in Jezreel. By the way, Jezebel was. It seemed as if that's where they were located. But when Jehu came in and, and killed Jezebel, well, you can imagine that the royal family scattered, and where would they have scattered? Now, uh, let's see here. I, I wanted to uh, actually do this before we started this evening, but I didn't get a chance. Last week, uh, we had a number of um, PowerPoints that I wanted to show you. We didn't get a chance. So here's one. I don't know if you can quite see it, but that's Jezebel being thrown out of the window. Okay, so that's what Jehu said. If you're for me, then throw her out of the window. And of course they did. I want to zoom in on this. Now most people at home don't get to see this. I'm really sorry. One, because I don't know how to do the technology. And two, uh, you'd have to come here to see it. There she is being thrown out of the window. And of course, she hits the ground. Blood splatters everywhere, even on the horses and on the wall, and she dies. And what happens? The canine prostitute. The dogs eat her. Now they went to go bury her, and there wasn't anything left except pieces. And I can't believe somebody did this. Here is a drawing of Jezebel in pieces. And do you notice the dog there? You see, that's a canine prophecy. I'm kind of zoom in on the dog there, and he's, I guess he didn't, <laughs> I guess he didn't get enough, because he's still sniffing around. Anyway, uh, that, that was what I wanted to show everybody last week, and it didn't get a chance. Alright, so, because of all of these things, and the death there of Jezreel, it's believed that the royal line was taken to Samaria. Well, 
Jehu writes the letter to, the, to those who are guarding the royal line. Let's look at verse 2. And verse 2 says, Now, when this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, as well as the chariots and horses, and a fortified city, and the weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne. Well, that's a gracious thing that Jehu is doing. Oh, wait. And fight for your master's house. In other words, here's Jehu, a little bit compassionate, isn't he? He's telling them what's about to happen. So, get ready, get your best and fittest, the survival of the fittest, get them on the throne, get ready or not, here I come. And he's going to fight. Now, by this time, Jehu is legendary. He's a legend in the number of times. Um, so we see that they are, they hear of, of, of his exploits, and, and they are in trouble. They, they know that they are in trouble. Now this was a necessary challenge. Uh, this was a necessary challenge for the power of the throne. He's the king of the northern kingdom. Jehu is. But here's the royal line that may attest to his Authority. And so there's going to have to be a showdown. And this was also done customarily. And of course, uh, it was also to the death of the royal line. But customarily, this was done. The one who is in power would go through the royal line to keep them from uprising. You know, there's always that bad taste in your mouth. You know, that's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. You know, and years later, they asked them, what are you all fighting about? And they said, we don't know. We're just fighting against them happiness. So anyway, those things linger, and Jehu was not going to allow it to linger. And so it was a necessary challenge. When we come to verse 4, and the rulers and the guardians, the administrators and the officials, those who are taking care of the seven sons of Ahab, it says, but they feared greatly, and rightly so, they should have, and said, Behold, the two kings did not stand before him. How then can we stand? The two kings would have been Joram, the northern kingdom, when Jehu drew back his arrow and shot right between the shoulders. And then he remembered that Ahaziah from the southern kingdom, because he was allying with the northern kingdom, he also was shot and killed. So if those two couldn't stand, how are we going to stand, especially with the, apparently it seems like younger sons, uh, sons who are not perhaps even full adults, how would they stand? And they feared greatly. And then verse 5, it says, and the one who was over the household and he who was over the city, the elders and the guardians of the children, sent word to Jehu, saying, We are your servants. All that you say to us, we will do. We will not make any man king do what is good in your sight. So the necessary challenge was met, and there will be no counter-challenge. We are your servants, and we're giving full allegiance to Jehu, which is exactly they should do in this instance. Now, one wonders if they know what's about to happen. They most likely do. And, and those of us who know this account, we know what's about to happen. So they say to him, we'll, we'll do whatever you ask. And they're probably hoping that what he's asking is not exactly what they're thinking. Well, let's take a look. Verse 6. Now, instead of a challenge to fight, it's a challenge of their loyalty. Then he wrote a letter to them a second time saying, If you are on my side and you will listen to my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow about this time. 
Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So, wow. So here you are, you've been you've been assigned to rearing them, to feeding them, to making them healthy, wealthy, and wise. You're doing that, and now you're asked to be head men. This is incredible. Now you remember, this was Jehu who, when he saw Jezebel in the window, and he saw some of the administrators, he said, whose side are you on? And they said, your side. And he said, throw her down. And they did. Now, a similar thing is being asked of them, and that is to behead those sons, the descendants of Ahab, so that there would be no further rebellion, and the house of Ahab will be destroyed. Well, when we get to verse 7, they did exactly that. No questions asked. When the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them at, to, uh, to him at Jezebel. So now they're sending the heads. They're bringing 70 heads in baskets. I wonder how many, you know, how many camels you need to carry 70 heads. But um, anyway, he did, and Jehu said, you got to do this before tomorrow, before tomorrow's over. Well, they got it to him that night. Well, let's find out what happened. They were ahead of the game, I guess you could say. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's spiritual warfare and temptation at the wrong time. Now, when the messenger of the state came and told Jehu, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said to them, Put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. So they were going to take these heads and put them in two heaps. Uh, we do find out that this is somewhat of a common practice with a victorious king over his enemies. The enemy was beheaded. They put them in big heaps. One of the reasons is as a demonstration to anyone who would dare rebel against the king. This is what would happen to you. You would have your head on fire. Heads will roll. Okay. Now we know where that came from. So anyway, this is exactly what happened, and they're going to be put there till tomorrow. Something was going to take place tomorrow. Jehu had the plan. Well, verse 9. It says, Now in the morning he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. Jehu was talking to the people. He says, You are innocent. Behold, I conspired against my master and killed him. Before we read on, what was he talking about? He's saying that he's the one that killed and conspired against his master and killed Joram. Now, he was told to do that. That was the mandate by Elijah, and then ultimately through Elisha. And this was the mandate. And so he did this. And so he's coming to the people, and he's saying, look, you're, you're totally innocent. You can wash your hands of this. You had nothing to do with your office to say, is he trying to work something here? Is he trying to, you know, kind of pull in a shenanigan here? Why would you have to go and tell the people that they certainly know they didn't kill their king? But he's putting on this idea that, hey, look, I, I'm going to be very upfront with you all. I killed Joel. I did that. That wasn't you. But then he says, but who killed all these? Now he's looking at the heads. The two heaps of heads. He says, I don't know who killed them. So he's not telling them that, yes, someone else killed them, but at his threatening order. He says, well, I don't know who killed them. One wonders why he didn't do that. Now, he, he was the commander of the military, and by rights, uh, obviously, a mighty man of valor. And uh, whatever he sets his heart to right now, the Lord is with him, and he's conquering Anyone who's of the house of Ahab, he shouldn't, he shouldn't have to 
apologize for this. You shouldn't have to, you know, um, even lie about it. But I wonder if there would be people in there in that area in Jezreel say, oh, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe that you killed all of those 70 sons, and some of them may have been very young. Now, people understood the culture of that day, so maybe they didn't say anything like that. But that's the only thing that I could come up with as to why he would not say that. He had every right to do it. And really, at this point, we see that as far as it goes, he has the Lord's uh, approval on everything that he's doing. So why does he do that? Well, it never really says why that he's doing it. But we know that already something's not something's not right. Something's starting to smell a little fishy with Jacob. And we're going to see it kind of progress throughout this chapter. All right, so he's saying he did not do this. And now look at verse 10. This is what you call a divine name dropper. You know people that are name droppers. So I don't know if, if they feel that they need to boost their ego a little bit. They'll talk about individuals who they've met or know their name droppers. Or maybe somebody's trying to get out of trouble. And uh, they'll, they'll bring up someone's name. They did it too, their name dropper. Well, he's a divine name dropper. So he says he did do it. He doesn't mention the administrators and the elders who were told to do it. This is what he says in verse 10. Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord <clears throat> spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elijah. Number one, he's saying whatever was done was, is okay because it was done in fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy. It was done in fulfillment of the Lord's mandate. And by the way, it's the Lord who did. So it doesn't matter who gave the instructions to behead them. It's the Lord who did it. Well, this is all partly true, except he's hiding the fact that he indeed gave the order. And since these sons are of the house of Ahab, it is fulfilling that prophecy. Uh, if you remember back in 1 Kings, let's go back to 1 Kings for just a moment. In 1 Kings chapter 21, 21 through 22, this is Elijah. And the reason why we're talking about Elijah is because this is the fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy. Elijah's still around. He's still ministering to the Lord, but... This is to show us that God is faithful. He's faithful in his promises, and he's faithful in his warnings. Verse 21 of chapter 21 of 1 Kings. Speaking for the Lord, he says, Behold, I will bring evil upon you. Speaking to Ahab. And will utterly sweep you away. And will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and in Israel. Now, most of the time, the phrase cut off means death. There are quite a few passages in the Bible where you hear cut off meaning death. Now, not every time, but it's not as if we say we're cutting them off and we're getting them out of the area that they never come back. Yeah, they're never coming back, but that's because they are going to die. And that's what this phrase cut off means. In fact, we're going to see that this Sunday as we talk about Isaiah 53 for our Easter sermon. We're going to see this term as we talk about the resurrection. Isaiah 53, as we all know, is that great, great chapter by Isaiah that talks about the suffering of Christ. And the major emphasis is the sacrifice of Christ. But did you know that it also talks about the prophecy of the resurrection of Christ? That's what we're going to so anyway, it goes on to say, I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. Now what, was, what happened then? They were taken out. Their line was totally removed so that they would not have descendants. They would not 
on the lines of the Mufat. Because of the, provoc the provocation which, with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel sin. This is with the Baal prophets and idolatry. This is what they had been up to this time. He was the worst of the worst, and God is going to bring it to him. Now, he didn't bring it to him right away, because God's will was for some of this it has unfolded, and here we are. So, this is the idea. But it's amazing that Jehu, he says, you didn't do it. I didn't do it. I guess the Lord did it, because this was his prophecy. Well, let's look at verse 11 now. In verse 11, it's going to say, So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab. So he kept going. He kept going after him. This was in Jezreel. Now there's more in other places. But he killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel. Watch this. And, so far so good. And all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests until he left him without a survivor. Now, those individuals were never part of the prophecy of Elijah. Those were never a part of the Lord's mandate. Now, I'm not saying they didn't deserve it, but that's not what God had asked Jehu to do, but he was doing it anyway. I mean, I mean, if you even wore the clothes that Ahab wore, you're done. He, you're you're going to get it. Well, he oversteps his bounds here. One might say, well, you know, there's always, uh, there's always these casualties in war, but the Lord's not going to take it that way. The Lord's going to deal with this, and there's something about this in Hosea, Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, where God is going to bring some judgment against Jehu for this particular thing. But there's more. There's more we'll find out. So, one writes this. But he also executed all Ahab's chief men, their officials, close friends, and priests, which God did not approve, and for which God judged Jehu's own dynasty later in Hosea 1.4. Jehu got carried away in his zeal and killed many innocent people who could have helped him to be a more effective king than he proved to be. Well, I don't know exactly about the last part. There's no possibility, but he, when it comes to God's will, there's times when you do not do more than God's will, nor do you do less than God's will, but you do God's will. Just ask Saul, the first king of Israel. And so this is going to happen. We'll talk about this, though, at the very end of this. Well, there's no immediate judgment, and he thinks... So far, so good. Let's go. So he's now going to go to Samaria because he thinks that's where they all fled. That's where the, the palace, or one of the palaces was, and he's right. And so he had already written the letters um, so that the sons' heads would be cut off and brought to Jezreel. That's about it. <coughs> now before we do that, let's look uh, just quickly at the kings and where we are. So the very end of this list, on the right-hand side, the northern kingdom, you see Jehu. He is running the show. The one before him, Shoram, one of the sons of Ahab, is dead. He got shot with an arrow. And Ahaziah, the last king of Judah, the southern, I mean the last one in the narrative so far, he also was killed because he was allying with the northern kingdom. You remember, there was a prophet that rebuked Jehoshaphat for doing that. How could you be with this wicked king who is okay with the golden calf and the worship of idols? So now there's just Jehu. There will be more, plenty more, but this is where we're at. And then, quickly, let's just look at Jezreel and Samaria. It's only, Samaria is only about 25 miles away from Jezreel. Now this is how those people at Samaria were 
able to, they had the sun, and then make it in time before sunset to bring the heads to judgment. It's only 25 miles away. You can see Jezreel there uh, the, at the uh, eastern side of the Jezreel Valley, and then south of that is Samaria. Now, this is all still in the northern kingdom. This isn't even down at the boundary of the northern and the southern kingdom. This is still in the northern kingdom. All right, so at this point, we, we, we're going to see Jeju go towards Samaria. But he doesn't make it to Samaria because he runs in to some of Ahaziah's relatives. Right. Let's look at verse 12 then. Verse 12 says, after there was no survivor there in Jezreel, then he arose and departed and went to Samaria. On the way, while he was at Beth ahead of the shepherds, verse 13, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And said, Who are you? And they answered, probably as bad as you could ever answer, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we've come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother, Jezebel. So look what happened here with Ahaziah. I mean, not only did he marry Ahab's daughter, but they're, they visit each other. You know, the kids have sleepovers in the royal kingdom with each other. And here's some of these relatives. We're going to go talk to some of the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. So it seems like they've not heard everything that has happened. And uh, there are those who have like a conspiracy theory that say that these are actually soldiers and they're, they're disguised. But, I mean, I just, I'm just going to take the scriptures for what it's worth. Very well shows that they didn't know exactly what it all happened. And I, if they would have, I doubt that they would say, "Oh yeah, we're going to go, uh, we're going to sleep over with the king's sons and with the queen mother." The queen mother, you're going to say that to Jehu? I don't think so. Well, anyway, this is this is how they answered, and uh, what we're going to find out is what do you think? Jehu is going to do. Well, he is pretty bloodthirsty. And there still seems to be some approval. He was allowed to kill Ahaziah because of his alliance. And it seems now that he can kill his relatives, too. He's in the business of killing relatives. And he's in the business of, do you know it? Well, I'm going to kill you, too. Uh, anyway, verse 14. We come to verse 14 and look what happens. He said, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the pit of Beth Akeh. Forty-two men, and he left none of them. Now, he didn't make it to Samaria, and we're not really sure where Beth Akeh is, except obviously it's somewhere along the way from Jezreel to Samaria. So that's, that's where he ran into these men. So he, he slaughtered them. Again, uh, is he bloodthirsty? Is it approved of the Lord? Well, you know, the Lord doesn't really say anything about this. All the Lord is going to say is those at Jezreel. Those, that, the innocent people, that's what, that's what provoked the anger of the Lord. One writes this, this slaughter by Jehu was because these people might have stimulated and strengthened those who were still loyal to the family that's a possibility. So uh, that was why John MacArthur and his sons of John MacArthur were condoning this, but he's saying one of the possible reasons of why this was done. Well, now that they are dead, and he's on the way to Samaria, well, let's pick it up in verse 15. In verse 15, we're going to meet, and Jehu is going to meet, Jehonadab. And Jehonadab uh, doesn't appear to be a prophet of the Lord, but he does certainly appear to be a staunch follower of Yahweh. 
these two are going to meet. Well, let's look at verse 15. It says, Now when he had departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right? As my heart is with your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. J.B. said, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up to uh, him, and then up into the chariot. Let's kind of work our way through this. Basically, what we have here is an agreement. Jehonadab knows everything that Jehu is doing. And he is being asked by Jehu, is your heart right? In other words, are you in agreement with, and he's going to certainly promote Elijah's prophecy, are you going to be in agreement with the Lord's mandate? And of course, who would deny that? But it's the idea, are you approving of what I'm doing? And of course, as far as it goes with the house of Ahab, yes, it's going to be an affirmative. And so his heart is right. It means, are you in agreement with me? Do you think that what I'm doing is right? Of course, I hate to be the person that says, no, I don't think you're right. One writes this, continuing his journey, Jehu met Jehonadab, son of Rechab. This man was a faithful follower of the Lord and a strict observer of the Mosaic Law. Where his name in Jeremiah is spelled Jehonadab, he was on his way to meet Jehu. Meeting Jehonadab, Jehu learned that he was a supporter of his policy to purge the land of Ahab's apostate. Now, if you would, turn over to Jeremiah 35. This is the only other place that we're going to find out about Jehonadab. Uh, But this is where we figure out, we figure out that he was a faithful father. By the way, the best way to identify these people is by whose son they are, who's their father. That's how they are identified in the Old Testament and even actually today. Well, we see in Jeremiah 35, 6, 7, it says, But they said, We will not drink wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall not drink wine, you or your sons, forever. Of course, probably looking at the bad examples that were found in the Bible, of course, who drank and terrible things happened, they make a commitment that they're not going and then also, verse 7, you shall not build a house, and you shall not sow seed, and you shall not plant a vineyard or own one, but in tents you shall dwell all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. So they're carrying out these particular things, just showing that they're going to be faithful followers of Yahweh. Well, when Jehu meets him, evidently he knew a little bit about him. Certainly Jehonadab knew a little bit about Jehu. They get together and they are in agreement. Next thing you know, he takes his hand and he helps him in the chariot. Now they're riding the chariot together. Well, this is a public declaration of agreement. All right? So, and today it would kind of be like a you have a friend, and your friend rides in your car, and they say, hey, come on for a ride with me. You know, you're with them. If people see you, you know, that's probably a good thing. You're friends and, and all of that. But if it's a, if it's a, an infamous character, you don't want to be seen with them. You don't want to be in their car. Well, in the same way, this is a public confession that there is agreement, one carrying out the prophecy, and the other supporting it. One writes says, joining hands and sharing a chariot were signs of agreement and mutual commitment. The new king invited his ally to accompany him to Samaria to witness his zeal for the Lord. What does that mean? More bloodshed. 
after they arrived, Jehu proceeded to kill all the remaining members of Ahab's family in fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy. Well, let's look at verse 17. And actually, verse 15, let's, let's look at verse 15 here. Where he says, If it is, give me your hand, and he gave his hand, and he took him up to the chariot. Verse 16, he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot. Now, in a way, uh, as we read that, it's almost kind of some more bad vibes. Come and look at what I'm going to do. Well, as Christians, we don't do that. Uh, always for the glory of the Lord, it's in doing it out of the will of the Lord, but it almost it doesn't sound quite right. And some of the things we're hearing about J.U., perhaps that uh, uh, whole idea of his ivory palace is starting to crumble. It says, so Come and see my zeal for the Lord. And so he made him ride in his chariot. We come to verse 17, which will be the last verse that we're going to cover tonight. And verse 17 says this. When he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. So here is Jehu fulfilling what he had been called to do to destroy the house of Ahab. And he appeals once again to why he's doing this. It's the prophecy of Elijah. We're saying, well, then he's got to be following the Lord's will. I agree. But you wonder about his heart for some of these little things like the little lie, uh, like uh, the over. <coughs> and killing innocent people. And even saying, well, what? Come and watch me. Come and watch me. Fulfilled and see the Lord. So, I want to say at this point, we're going to kind of read a little bit ahead, not too much ahead. Uh, but J.U. does get approval from the Lord for destroying the house of Ahab. However, not everything he did we shall see. But what I'd like you to do is just drop down in this chapter to verse 30. 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30. And all of us read that. And put fingers at the other verses because I don't want you to read before or after. Right, so it says, verse 30 of chapter 10, the Lord said to Jacob, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And so we see the Lord saying, this is what I want to do. Again, people can question, well, this is terrible. God is a vengeful God in the Old Testament. No, he is a holy God. He's also a holy God in the New Testament. And he is faithful to his righteousness and holiness in carrying out his promises, either a promise or a warning. Of course, in many instances, we find the Lord so willing to forgive people who come and turn. That's what he's doing with the people of Israel in northern Canaan. That's what he's going to do with Judah. He's going to have Jeremiah beg Judah to turn. Because northern Canaan is already in captivity. doesn't matter. And, of course, the Lord brings about and deals with sin. So it's not that the Lord is sensual, but that the Lord is holy. Furthermore, the Lord is the Lord. And it says it's appointed unto man once to die. It's up to God how he wants that one to die. I mean, whether a building collapses and falls on top of them, or whether an enemy nation comes and kills them on the battlefield, whether it's by a random archer, I love that, a random arrow that God Ahab, though Jehoshaphat was dressed up like, like Ahab, or even someone from within the camp of God's people. This is, this is, this is certainly possible and doable. It's not immoral. Uh, it is God who has the right to bring judgment on whomever he decides, and he will bring death to everyone. It's appointed unto man once to die, but it's not. 
bit of this digression of Jehu. And it begins with that little lie. And he didn't have to lie. He could have said, look, I did it. And this is why, because I didn't want them coming against me later on in rebellion. Does anyone here have a problem with that? He could have said that. And it would have went over. I don't know why he did. But I'm going to call it a successful lie. I'm not going to call it a good lie. There is no such thing as a good lie. But it was a successful lie. And human terms, not, not from God's point of view, but this was a successful lie, humanly speaking, that he said he did not know who carried out the beheading of the 70 sons of Ahab. And then he blamed it on God, who really, um, God really was behind that in the first place. Well, we find out that that successful lie kind of moved him a few steps in the wrong direction, and that led to his disobedience. In other words, once you start going down the road of sin, whether it's a little white lie, or whether it's a little disobedience, now it's a lot easier to take that next step of disobedience. And of course, what was it in Jehu's case? Well, he was going to kill innocent people when he was only told to kill the house of Ahab. And this is sin. And as God has done so many times, not only does he punish the enemies of Israel, but he also punishes Israel for Israel's sin. And he's going to judge the house of Jehu. Now, I don't want to steal Ruth's thunder from the book of Hosea. But would you turn with me to Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. Hosea chapter 1 verse 4. And it says, And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Well, the only thing he's talking, the only thing he mentions here is the bloodshed. That's the one where he not only got the relatives, but he got friends of the relatives and acquaintances of the relatives. Um, and so this is the judgment. So we know this was wrong. He overstepped his bounds at that point, and maybe other points as well. Now, my point is look what happens when you go down this road. It starts with just a little lie. And you know, many times you have to come up with another lie to back that. But the idea is it also opens the door for disobedience. And by the way, a lie is disobedience. Don't just obey the word that tells us to be truthful. So now we have the disobedience. And of course, one disobedience leads to another. We're going to see. We're going to see that it really does open the door. And that Jehu did not follow the Lord. And, and, and it's going to be very hard to understand because more of the was to change you for the Lord. And yet he will not follow the Lord's lead. So it begins with these little things. So, you know, let's not even make the smallest of sin. Let's confess immediately the smallest of sin. Let's not go down this way, but be willing and ready to obey the Lord no matter what. And in some cases, no more than the will of God and no less than the will of God. But Warren Wiersbe writes something. He thought, that, and I thought this was interesting. He said, we cannot help but think that Jehu was more anxious to murder Ahab's family than to glorify the Lord. Huh, that's an interesting thought. In other words, he was in ministry for the Lord. And he enjoyed that ministry so much that that was put on the pedestal. In a sense, maybe that's what he worshipped more than the Lord. He wanted to see his own glory. Come and see this deal for the Lord that I have, rather than to glorify the Lord. That, that would be terrible, but that's an interesting thought. You know, we can apply that to our lives as well. Now, we should enjoy ministry. And I know that ministry at times has its challenges. <coughs> right now, as we're in chapter 6 of Ephesians, we would say that many of those challenges come from spiritual warfare, from Satan. 
trying to make you grow in the town because something exciting is about to happen. Brother, this is coming in the elevator about some spiritual warfare that was going on in, in their ministry and uh, you know, trying to deal with it. And then the following week, he was able to lead someone to the Lord. So that's, that's exactly why we don't grow in, in the town. And we do enjoy ministry. We don't enjoy the bad parts of it, the challenges of it, but we should just enjoy our ministry. That's why we do it. But we should never enjoy our ministry more than we enjoy the Lord or enjoy glorifying the Lord. You say, well, how could that happen? Well, one of the ways in which it could happen is we're continuing our ministry, we're enjoying it, maybe we're getting a lot of accolades, maybe we're doing it for the accolades, but perhaps our spiritual lives are starting to wane a little. We're not as careful and as dedicated with our spiritual lives. Our spiritual fervor is dying down a little bit, but we love our ministry. This is great. And the idea to glorify the Lord now gets put on the back burner because we've cooled down spiritually. Or maybe we want the limelight rather than the Lord. So that's just something we need to think about. In other words, we should be involved in ministry. We should enjoy ministry, even though there's going to be difficulties and spiritual warfare. But we should never enjoy ministry more the Lord than the Lord, because we're doing it for the Lord. And we should never seek our glory above the glory of the Lord. So, in other words, we should continue our ministry, continue to enjoy it, but our spiritual lives and spiritual fervor to glorify Christ should never cool that we should close in the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word in which we're able to see principles and unfortunately many times principles digressing away from you. But perhaps, Father, they're given so that we don't do them. Perhaps it's given for us so that, Father, as we enjoy serving you, we must always understand that serving you should always seek to glorify you rather than our own glory. So Lord, would you help us understand these principles and understand the principle of as we do ever take that little step of disobedience, it's on a very, very downhill grade. And it's so much easier to go and continue in disobedience rather than to turn back, turn back to you. Help us with these things, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.